quite a journey to get here uh, for this evening. I thought I would be actually here for Sunday, but then the journey continued for days. Uh, I'll, I'll get into, I'm gonna, it ties in well to the message here, a little bit of this story uh, of our travels over the weekend. Uh, so I'll get into that shortly. I just want to draw your guys' attention to these cards, and uh, I've, I hope in the seat pockets, and many of them at least, if you haven't gotten uh, maybe a few of these or a handful or a stack, uh, there is plenty out in the foyer to take them. This is for you to give out, to invite people to join us as we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, remembering this, guys, this is what we're all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the gospel, right? And so we are walking forward, moving forward in hope, in transformation. And uh, because of that, we have reason to share the good news. Because of the resurrection, we have hope. Because of the resurrection, we have life. As Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Looking forward to this message for Easter titled Empty, uh, and I'm not going to give you any further spoilers on it. You'll find out more about it on Easter Sunday. And I pray that you would grab, as I said, a handful of these and hand them out to people, maybe co-workers or neighbors or family members or random people you run into in the store or at the gas station or whatever. And just invite people to join us uh, Easter as we celebrate uh, the, the main you know, services that we would be, in, you know, encouraging you especially to invite people would be Good Friday uh, at 7 p.m. And then, of course, Easter Sunday. We have three services. I don't think you're going to get anybody to show up at 6.30 on Sunday morning. But if you do, congratulations. You don't win a prize, but good job. And uh, we also have, of course, 9 and 11 that same day. Pray for good weather so we can enjoy being not too cold outside uh, for the sunrise service at 6.30. So looking forward to that. Genesis chapter 29, we'll jump right in, continuing our study through the book of Genesis. If you need a Bible, put your hand up. The ushers are coming through with those. If you don't own a Bible and you want to keep that Bible, you're welcome to it. Just let us know so we can replenish. Uh, Genesis chapter 29, the very first book of the Bible, we have been studying through the book of Genesis for some time now, a little more than halfway through the book, uh, seeing such a, a great emphasis on the promises of God and how he fulfills his promise, no doubt, time and time again. No matter what, God will fulfill his promise. God will work out his plan. And uh, we're seeing that happen through Right now, the life we saw the life of Abraham. Now we saw the life of Isaac. We're looking at the life of Jacob. Continuing in the life of Jacob here in Genesis 29, it says this, verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of what well of that well, they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth, and all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's 
mouth. So here we see this. Jacob is on his journey. Now it's like we get this idea, right? Oh, he was on his journey, man. It's cool. Jacob's just on his journey. Jacob being on this journey, and you guys got to study last week, Pastor Colin taught a bit of that journey and Jacob's time spent in the vow that he made before God in Bethel. And uh, even then before that, the journey begins as Jacob is what? He's running from his brother. Esau, Esau was out to kill Jacob. He was angry because Jacob literally stole everything from him, his blessing and his birthright. Esau being the firstborn son, everything was due to him. As the firstborn, he would get the blessing, he would get the birthright, he would get all this abundance of blessing from his father that was passed down from Abraham. This is the blessing. Right, Jacob comes in, and now God prophesied, God said it was going to happen, but Jacob, along with his mother, they swoop in, they, he steals the blessing right from Esau. First, he tricks his brother into selling his birthright, and then he comes and he steals the blessing. Uh, and so now we're, we're in this place, Jacob, running from Esau, has this encounter with the Lord. This is now, Jacob is not a godly man. But the Lord met with him, the Lord, he encountered the Lord, and that's not, it's the first time that we see it, but it's not going to be the last time, because things didn't quite get through Jacob's thick skull just yet, but it was the beginning. He met with the Lord, he heard from the Lord, and now he's still on his journey, and his journey was quite a wild journey. But now, you know, in the, the word even of Jacob being on his journey translates to Jacob lifted up his feet. After he left, he was running from his brother. I'm sure weary along the way. Uh, you know, as he's, he's always on the move is the idea here that he's now got a little spring in his step as he's on the move. He's beginning to embrace this place of being a pilgrim. Right? I mean, this, this is his people, right? Abraham was a, a nomad moving about. And so now he's embracing that same lifestyle. In the beginning, he's thinking, man, I, I thought I had the blessing, but now I'm running from my brother and I'm all disappointed, maybe hanging his head and disappointed and, and going through this difficulty. But yet now he's beginning to embrace the journey. He's beginning to embrace this pilgrim lifestyle. Right, and uh, after he had experienced, of course, the presence of the Lord, uh, he's returning as he was told to to the land of Abraham. And Jacob comes to this well. Now it tells us there was all these sheep and many, you know, these three different flocks of sheep. With the sheep come shepherds. Comes to this well surrounded by sheep. And surrounded by shepherds. Now, we have the Christmas cards, you know, that we send out at Christmas time, and it's got this beautiful picture of the shepherds, you know, maybe out in the field, and we, we quote the scriptures. I mean, the shepherds kept over, you know, watch over their flock by night. And it's like this peaceful idea. But we've talked about it before at Christmas time, how miserable it was to be a shepherd. These are not just like gentle dudes. I mean, David was a shepherd, and he killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands, right? 
Now, we know he was just a kid, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord protected him, and the Lord worked through him, and he then defeated a giant, right? It was all the work of the Lord. But these shepherds, they had a rough job. They were dirty. Most likely, the shepherds were some burly-looking, rough, tough dudes. And here comes Jacob. Remember who Jacob is. Not Esau. Not the hairy, burly, rough, tough dude. Jacob, he was a little more of a homemaker, it would seem, right? And he likes to just hang out inside and relax. And he, he was a good cook with mom and those type of things, right? And he shows up with all these sheep and shepherds after he had wandered. He was embracing this life of being a pilgrim. And now here he is coming to the well. And here's the burly, rough, tough-looking shepherds. Verse 4. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. So Jacob shows up, these rough, tough, burly shepherds. And he says, hey, my brethren. He takes total control of the situation from the get-go, right from the beginning, with great confidence. Now remember, who's Jacob? He's the con man of con men. He is the dirty, sneaky thief, the deceiver. And so now he steps into a situation and says, I'm going to take control. That's exactly what he's doing. He's taking control of the situation. With all these rough, tough dudes, he doesn't care. He's going to take control. And so with great confidence, he speaks boldly. And he says, my brethren, where are you from? Now the idea, now first of all, he doesn't know where he's, where he's at. He has been wandering he is a pilgrim at this point. He's just kind of aimlessly trying to figure some things out, and he's trying to get to Haran. He's trying to get to the land of his mother to find his uncle Laban and to find a wife as well, as his, his father told him to do. And so here they are. Here he is taking some control of the situation, no doubt acting as a great salesman, and what do they do? I, I love their just simple responses. This is kind of like when, you know, maybe some of you guys come home from work and your wife has got all these questions for you and you're like, Haran, how was your day? Good. Is that not enough? Right? I mean, we, my kids too, they come home from school. They're like, hey, how was school today? Good. Can I go play? Did anything happen? I'm, I'm, I've learned now. You have to ask, anything good happen? No, not really. Anything bad happen? No, not really. Okay. And then like four hours later, they'll be like, actually, you know what happened? And it's like, come on, guys. 
Give me a little something. And this is kind of what's happening here. They're totally blowing him off because who is this guy? Who is this guy who just showed up out of nowhere? He's at our well with our sheep, and he's asking us about our lives. These rough dudes, they don't want to have anything to do with him. In a sense, they're blowing him off, and they just simply say, we are of Haran. You see, at Bethel, Jacob experienced the presence of God, and in that, he got to learn the character of God. His presence is so real and compassionate, and now he shows up at the well, and he gets to learn the character of man which is very contrary to the character of God. Not very loving, not very compassionate. It's harsh. Jacob is treated like an outsider and a stranger. You know, giving us a perspective even, the idea that we are ourselves, we are sojourners, we are pilgrims, and we are passing through this life onto eternity. And so you know what? We shouldn't be so surprised as we press into the character of God and we learn the character of God and we draw near to God, we should not be so surprised when we are treated like foreigners and strangers in this world. I've said it before. I'll say it again. More and more every single day, I feel like we don't fit in this world. You scroll through Netflix. There's nothing for us to watch. You, you go and you, you walk, you drive down the road and there, you can't look at the billboards, some of them. It's depressing, isn't it? More and more, we don't fit. I, we just went to Disney World, my family, last week. And man, does it seem like we don't fit in this world. Something that's supposed to just be this wholesome fun for the family which, by the grace of God, the kids are oblivious to anything that's going on, you know. Like, this is great. Yes, it's great. Praise the Lord. But I see everything, and I'm like, oh, you're going to be kidding me right now, you know. But more and more, we do not fit. We are sojourners. And the more we learn the character of God, the more the character of man will be revealed, and we will be rejected by the world. That's what we're seeing take place here. It's just a picture. Uh, most of Jacob's life, however, he was, I mean, his mom's favorite. He was a mama's boy, right? Treated like royalty most of his life. And now here he shows up, and he's not getting the royal treatment, just yet at least. And so now he asks, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. Right? I mean, this is just a simple, straightforward, yes. You get like that little grunt kind of, yeah, yeah, okay. Further confidence, though, that Jacob moves forward in. He was going to control this situation. He was going to control the conversation and get things going the way that he wanted. Now, mind you, as he's speaking with all this great confidence and he's looking to control the situation, he's not yet pressed into the Lord. He's not yet asked God to control the situation. 
And we're going to see things massively spiral out of control in this chapter for him. It didn't matter to Jacob. He keeps moving forward with confidence. In, his, in himself was this confidence and that he was going to control the things that they would go the way he wanted. And so they say to him, we know him. Uh, this conversation continues in a harsh manner, but the idea of what they're saying is even, yeah, we know him. It's, a, it's a, of course we know Laban. Everybody knows Laban. Laban, the most difficult man around. It has been said of Laban that he and Ebenezer Scrooge were cut from the same cloth. Right? I mean, this is Laban. Jacob, the dirty, sneaky thief, is about to go toe-to-toe with Uncle Laban. The dirty, sneaky thief, right? I mean, this is, this is a heavyweight battle of con men about to take place that we're going to see in this chapter. But that's the perspective of the shepherds. Yeah, Laban, he's got a lot of clout around here, a lot of influence. And then Jacob asks, is he well? Jacob, again, continuing with confidence and determined to control the situation and to control the people he's talking to. That's what a good con man does. Control the situation. Control the people you're talking to. Get the responses that you want out of them. He was in pursuit to get something. And they finally broke down a little bit. Yeah, we know Laban and... Here comes his daughter. Well, this was quite a revelation. Here comes his daughter. In chapter 28, verse 2, right, it says, uh, Isaac is saying to Jacob, he says, Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban. Okay. So, here comes Laban's daughter. Ding, 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 right? Light bulb. (laughs) And so his response now, he's looking around, he sees these shepherds, he sees the sheep, and he says, hey, what are you sitting around for? Water the sheep. Give them food, give them water. It's not time for them to gather. Again, just completely trying to take control of the situation. Jacob is also struggling to understand why these shepherds are standing around and waiting. This shows even further the control that Laban had over the region and especially over this well because they were waiting. What were they waiting for? Here comes Laban's daughter and she was a shepherdess. And she was bringing the flock along as well. So now was the time that all the sheep would be gathered and it was time to move the stone and they could water the sheep and feed the sheep. Jacob gets this news that it's Laban's daughter. The light bulb goes off as he's thinking perhaps, right from the get-go, perhaps he found his wife. It's an idea that he had from the get-go. And, and, and then even in the midst of that, perhaps trying to distract these shepherds with 
feeding and watering their sheep so he could get a minute alone with Rachel. And their response is, of course, we can't, we can't do this until all the sheep come, until all are gathered and the stone is moved. Then we water the sheep. And so verse nine now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. And further, Jacob is taking even more control over the entire situation. He just showed up and he's the foreman on the job. He's barking out orders, and they're like, whoa, that's not the way things are done around here. Remember that statement. That's not the way things are done around here. Yet he's going to keep trying to do things his way. And so now, that's not the way things are done. Rachel shows up. Okay, here's the sheep. (laughs) Move the stone. Rachel arrives. The sheep arrive. He takes it upon himself to move the stone. Definitely taking matters into his hands, perhaps trying to impress Rachel. And what does he do? He serves. It's a good lesson to learn here, right? What does he do? He does the work of a servant. I'm reminded of John chapter 13 when Jesus tells the disciples as he washes their feet, he says, now you do it. He's not telling them to keep washing feet for the rest of their lives and do the feet, the foot washing ministry and do the, you know, the foot, have a foot washing church. He's saying, do the work of a servant because that's what the servants would do. They would get those dirty, nasty feet and they would wash them. As Jesus girded himself and he, he made himself a servant of his disciples. It's an example we can learn from this. What does he do? He serves. He, water, he gives the water to the sheep. He doesn't just move the stone. And then he kissed Rachel. That's quite surprising. But likely this type of greeting was a common greeting of a relative. It's not just like he showed up and he swept her off her feet and kissed her and I mean, likely it was a common greeting that, you know, the, uh, a relative, he, would, he sees, he finds out she's a relative, she's a cousin, and so he kisses her, greets her with a kiss, and then informs her at the same time of who he is, where he's from, that he's Rebecca's son. And then he wept. Now, I would say it is likely that he wept out of joy. Perhaps that he found his wife, but out of relief that he had come to the place that his father told him he would come to. He arrived at his destination. Again, this picture, guys, of eternity. As we are pilgrims, sojourners, walking through this life, looking forward to living for eternity, when we arrive at that destination, 
I believe there will be great tears of joy. There's a song we sing by Phil Wickham, Christ is Risen, when tears of joy roll down my face. When we arrive, when we see him face to face. That's what it's about. That's the, the joy. It brings this great relief when you arrive. He was running from Esau. He was on his wild journey as a pilgrim. He encountered the Lord at Bethel and now finally realized that he had reached his destination and perhaps even found his wife. What a gift this was to him, and yet he didn't even realize it. Now, I can relate the joy in reaching a destination. As you may have heard, <laughs> we were on vacation. We were set to fly home on Saturday. I was planning to be here at church on Sunday. I was not here at church on Sunday. We get to the airport about 10 o'clock in the morning. Everything goes smoothly. We go through you know, the security, get on the plane. This is great. We'll be home in two hours. The, the plane backs up probably 20 feet and stops, and the captain comes on. Sorry to inform you guys, all northbound flights have been shut down. Oh. Now he made it seem like maybe it was going to be like an hour delay. I'm like, all right, we'll just hang tight. Then a few minutes later, they pull back into the gate, and they open the door. They're like, hey, if you want to get off, you can. Like, that's not a good sign. <laughs> that's a bad start to this, you know? I'm like, oh, we'll be all right. I'm just sitting there. I start dozing off, and then, of course, everybody's getting restless, the six of us, and the kids are like, got to do something. Got to move, you know? We get off. Our flight was supposed to leave about 1230, then we're just waiting. I'm hearing all these other flights getting canceled. The weather was really bad. There was major air traffic control issues. There was technical issues on some planes. There was crew issues. on. It was madness, total madness. I hear every five minutes is another flight got canceled. So I'm like, our flight's going to get canceled. But they're holding our bags ransom, right? The bags are on the plane. I'm like, just give me my bags and I'm out of here. I'll find a way home. But now we're stuck, and it took them five hours till they finally canceled the flight. So we sat for five, then five something, they canceled the flight, and then it's a mad rush to go figure out what's next. Guys, there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people that were all trying to do the same thing at the same time. Rebook on another flight, so there's no flights till Tuesday, right? Then, okay, now we just gotta figure out where the rental car, or where, where our bags are, right? Figure out, oh, yeah, it's going to take hours because all everybody's bags are coming to this one place, right? Okay, and then there's a fight starts breaking out in the airport. My wife's with the kids. She's like, she had wisdom. God blessed her with wisdom. She heard the first couple words of the fight between two guys, and she's like, let's go. She got them out of there. I was looking for our bags somewhere else in the airport, and she got out of there just in time. This ended up on the national news. These guys got arrested, the fight, it was bloody, it was a mess. Shirts are coming off, people scream, it was nuts. And my wife got the kids out of there just in time, right? So this is, this is just the beginning. You know, I've been saying in my messages, but wait, there's more. <laughs> 
seriously, there's more. It, get, it gets wild. Then we finally figure out, she, my wife's waiting with the kids for the bags. Then I'm going to get in line for the rental car. Here, I think I'm ahead of the curve. I get to the rental car line. There's thousands of people. I'm like, all right, it's going to be all day. You know, and so then three hours waited for the rental car. I get to the front. I said, listen, I've got six people. Do you have something that will fit us? And Lee says, good luck. <laughs> okay. Oh, so we end up in, uh, I, you know, we went back and forth, tried to get us in a couple really small cars. I was like, come on, help me out. Uh, and finally, we get in the car. It's a five-passenger car, but it's a little bigger than other five-passenger cars. And we, at this point, guys, it's 9 o'clock at night. We got to the airport 10 o'clock in the morning. It's 9 o'clock at night. I was like, I don't care what it is. It could be a bicycle. Get me out of the airport. My kids have been in the airport for 11 hours. Anyway, so we leave. We go. We hadn't eaten dinner. We pull into an IHOP. And then as a family, we just embraced each other and melted down in the, in the parking lot of the IHOP in the rain. <laughs> that was not tears of joy or relief yet. Because... <laughs> We had in our mind, we had a 17-hour drive in a five-passenger vehicle with six people. So it wasn't such joy. But we ate dinner, and then we drove a couple hours. We stayed uh, near Jacksonville and then thought, maybe we've got a hotel in Jacksonville. Maybe we'll go to the Jacksonville airport and switch vehicles in the morning. But let's get a good night's sleep. 6.45 on Sunday morning. But wait, there's more. The fire alarm goes off in the hotel. I'm not kidding you. I'm not making any of this up. <laughs> when it was happening, I thought this all has to be a terrible dream. The fire alarm goes off. It goes off for 45 minutes. It, w- it goes off for a couple minutes, then it comes back on. I look out the door. Everybody's peeking out the door, barely can open our eyes. We're like, what's going on? There's a flood in the hallway of the hotel. So we're like, let's get out of here. We pack up get out the door, we go to the airport in Jacksonville, and, and the lady's really sweet and helpful, and I've got a, an SUV that'll fit you, you know, seven passengers. Great, thank you so much. Now we go outside, we're waiting for like 45 more minutes. Where's the car? Oh, it's a valet, they're gonna pull it up. I'm like, this is, I don't need it, just show me where it is, I'll walk five miles if I have to, just get me in a car. <laughs> the guy calls down, hey, where's this guy's car? He's been waiting here forever. Oh, we don't know where that car is. I'm like, are you serious? I just said anything with more than five passengers. He's like, wait, I've got a minivan. He just hands me the keys and I drive away. That was it. We're gone. (laughs) I don't know whose minivan it was. He gave me the keys. (laughs) Oh my goodness. We get in the car. It's been now a couple more hours in the morning on Sunday. I said to my wife, we have two choices. We can be miserable, drive straight home, get home in the middle of the night, or make a trip of it. So we ended up stopping off, visiting some good friends. Uh, The Clunt family, who used to be here with us, Jason and Brooke, they housed us for the night. We spent some time with them, had a great time. Uh, And then we drove home. We arrived at about 9 o'clock on Monday night. The journey that started at 10 a.m. on Saturday, we got home at 9 o'clock on Monday in the evening. And I'm telling you, there was tears of joy and relief. The dog was so happy to see us. We were happy to see the dog. 
Don't worry, we didn't leave him home alone for a week, I promise. Um, but man, we were just, it, that relief, and you get it, whenever you go on any trip, when you finish the journey, when you get home, or if you've ever been on a long road trip of any sort, you get to that destination, and you're like, thank you, Lord. It happened. And maybe it's a journey in life that you're going through that it feels like, man, everywhere I turn, there's another line of a 1,000 people, or there's a fire alarm, or there's a flood, or there's a car that won't fit my family, and things, some of them are little inconveniences, and some of them are pretty miserable. And maybe you're going through journeys, and you're facing miserable things along the way, but guys, there's hope. There's hope. When you get to the destination, the relief will be overwhelming. The joy will be overwhelming because of the hope that you have in the destination. Verse 13, then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him for a month. Now Jacob meets Laban. Laban gets this news of who he is, and he comes out to meet him. He's excited to meet him. Laban gives Jacob the royal treatment that Jacob was always looking for. And he's knowing that Jacob is from the land of promise, that Jacob is from great wealth and blessing, from a wealthy family. Laban is playing Jacob right from the beginning. That's what's happening. I mean, there's so much to laugh at in this encounter, man. These guys are just back and forth. He also doesn't know that Jacob is a fugitive from his brother Esau. But he stayed a month. It says, in all the while, in this month, what's happening? Jacob is falling in love with Rachel and devising a plan. Because that's what Jacob does. Laban is sizing up Jacob and devising a plan. Because that's what Laban does. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, you, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel, who we already met. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful. Of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than, uh, than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. Now the, those last few words, stay with me, is the key because that's the motive. Stay with me. What had happened in this month as Jacob's falling for Rachel, as Laban is liking what he sees from Jacob. What was happening, likely, was that Jacob was tr tricking people and cheating people along the way, working for Laban and getting Laban more money in his pocket. More power, more clout, more influence. And so now Laban says, stay with me. Rachel, Leah, 
doesn't really matter. Stay with me. And that's the perspective. He's like, well, it's better that she marry you than another. So you stay with me. That's what really matters. As I said, Laban is playing Jacob. And uh, Jacob was clearly useful to Laban. The idea here is that Laban could not manage without Jacob. And Jacob was working up a plan, and Laban was working up a plan. Jacob had fallen for Rachel, and it specifies there was two daughters. He had fallen for Rachel, not Leah. Now, Rachel, it says, was beautiful. A form and appearance. But Leah, it says, her eyes were delicate. Now, there's a bit of a, you know, argument over what does this actually mean. It either means her eyes were bad, she couldn't see, or her eyes were not full of beauty and life. But here's the key. It was a contrast from Rachel, okay? So the contrast was Rachel was beautiful, Leah was not. She was not like her sister, Rachel. And so now Laban asks, what should your wages be? It's not, and he's buttering him up. It's not right that you, being a family member, should work for free. Stay with me. Serve me. Let me lock you up to a contract, a binding contract. This is all what's happening. And so Jacob, as, as Laban says, what should your wages be? What's his response? Immediately, Rachel. He had it all figured out. He had an answer ready to go. He had a plan because that's what Jacob does. Yet again, at no point did he check in his plan with the Lord's plan. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And it says here that he loved her so much it seemed only a few days to him. It's quite a beautiful love story when you look at that verse alone, right? Wow. Oh, he worked seven years for his wife. He loved her so much that it only felt like a few days. Oh, everybody, you know. But... Now the story takes quite a turn, and it unfolds, and we're going to look at this in three different parts here. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the, the place and made a feast. Now, number one, he made a demand. Now, this is how a con man works, right? I mean, just making a demand. After he goes through, I did the seven years, give me my wife. Settle down, man. He was direct. This is probably the, the most direct thing we've ever heard Jacob say. Constantly tricking people and beating around the bush. And now he's straight, direct. Give me my wife. And Laban follows through. He throws a wedding feast. He gathers everyone and throws this great wedding feast. And the custom of a wedding would indicate that the bride would be heavily veiled. And during the celebration, the bride and groom would not 
see very much of each other. And the bride would remain heavily veiled until the evening after the celebration in their chambers. Now, number two, point number two of this section, or the next part here, a discovery is made. Number one was a demand is made, now a discovery is made. Verse 23. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and so so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. A discovery is made. Uh Uh-oh. The discovery of Laban's plan unfolds. It was Leah. This is quite a scene here. Now, according to custom, we made clear that it was possible for Jacob to not know. It was dark. It was after this celebration. Perhaps he had had a little too much to drink. We don't know all that, right? But we know it was a celebration. We know the custom was that the bride was heavily veiled until the evening after the celebration. And so they consummated the marriage. And Jacob responds, after seeing then that it was Leah, imagine what he went through in that moment. And he says, why have you done this to me? And Laban responds. Now remember I said, remember this statement of the, the shepherds? What do they say? Basically, they're, they're giving Jacob a perspective of the way things are done around here. And that's basically Laban's response. Well, that's not the way things are done around here. And now what he says after, why have you done this to me? Laban says, custom. The custom is that we respect the rights of the firstborn. The firstborn is to be married off first. Ouch. That stings. That's quite a blow to Jacob's ego after he had cheated his brother Esau, the firstborn, out of his birthright, out of his blessing. And then Laban says to him, we treat the firstborn with respect. It was a reminder, a harsh reminder of his sin. He didn't get, it, get off easy. We think, so, well, he, he got the blessing and then he ran away and then eventually Esau welcomes him back open arms by the grace of God. He didn't get off easy. A harsh reminder here of what he had done. A harsh reminder of his sin. 
The deceiver was deceived. Laban outtricked Jacob. Ultimately, guys, you reap what you sow. Exactly what he had tried to pull on his father to trick Esau, to trick his father, came around to bite him. And this was all a learning experience, right? Jacob is in the school of hard knocks right here. And he's facing some consequences for his own sin. And so what's the answer? How do we fix this? Laban's got it all figured out. Seven more years. How about that, Jacob? Again, you see, Laban, the way that he treated his own daughters was complete disrespect. Again, it was about him. As I said before, what he said to Jacob was, you stay with me. That's what it was about. Let me use you and your business acumen a little while longer. Leah, Rachel, Bilha, Zilpa doesn't really matter. You stay with me. You work for me. You're my servant. He had control over Jacob. Jacob's sin had control over Jacob. That's the reality, guys. Sin doesn't let go. We have to surrender it to Jesus. Jacob has not gotten there yet, but he will. So you reap what you sow, and, and so what's the answer? Serve another seven years? Laban liked having Jacob around, tricking other people for him, so why not have, have seven more years of that? He's using and abusing Jacob and his daughters and everybody else along the way. So Jacob served seven more years and got what he came for. He got Rachel as his wife. Now we continue verse 30, and the third part of this section here is a difficulty. Verse 30, then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. This is a difficulty here. Domestic difficulties set in because of sin. Right? I mean, this is dysfunctional family. We've been looking at the dysfunction of the family of Isaac and Rebecca and, and how that just carries on now. Dysfunctional family begets dysfunctional family. Who's going to break the mold, right? But these domestic difficulties come from sin. And Jacob, it continues. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, he was bound to Leah. But yet he proved to Leah that he didn't care. He was going to work for seven more years, and he did, and he got Rachel. And now the indication or the text would indicate to us here that Jacob forsook and despised Leah. It wasn't just that he loved Rachel so much, and Leah was, oh, yeah, well, she was still his wife. He still nurtured and cared for her. No, he used and abused her, like Laban used and abused him. You see, Jacob forsook and despised Leah. 
all along still proceeding in life without any influence from God. But God loves the forsaken and the forgotten. God shows compassion. And he blessed her womb. And he made Rachel barren. Further consequence of sin. Now according to culture, Jacob would want sons to carry on the lineage. But that would not be through Rachel. That has to sting too. But God showed great compassion to Leah. So, verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Hold on a minute. So he loved Rachel. He forsook Leah. He despised Leah. Rachel despised Leah. Yet, Jacob had no problem using Leah for sex and for sons. Just like Laban, he used and abused. Because he had not yet surrendered to the Lord. He still had his way and his plan that he was going to figure out. And she names this son Reuben. And the name Reuben means behold a son. And that behold is that perspective, that idea that this son is going to bring. The Lord has seen my affliction and the Lord is going to bring love to me through this son. My husband will finally love me because I gave him a son. She was deceived to think this. She was longing for love and she continued to give herself to Jacob to try to win the love of her husband. So then verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, He has therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. The name Simeon means hearing or heard, thinking maybe she will be heard. Maybe she will be noticed in her affliction. Further, verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son And said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. The name Levi means attached. Thinking. Perhaps now we are really bonded and connected. She's living in this hope of being a loving, happy family. I've seen it. We've seen it happen. We've seen total dysfunctional families. We've seen situations where people have have totally ruined their lives, yet, well, if we just have a baby, things will get better. And then go through it again. Oh, my affliction, everything's so difficult. Have another baby. Things will get better. And again, and again, this is the third time. 
Now we're attached. Now we're bound together. There's no way. He's not going to leave me. He's going he's to finally, maybe he's going to love me. He's going to see me. It's going to be all good now. We're going to be a happy family because we're attached. Verse 35. Now remember, the Lord brought the blessing of these children. One after the next. Verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now... I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. She stopped bearing after she said, now I will praise the Lord. Something happened. Something changed in Leah, in her perspective along the way. And the name Judah means praise. So here she's, she's just constantly reminded of her affliction. She's constantly reminded of her pain and reflecting on her pain and naming her children after her pain. But now something changed. No longer caught up in pain, suffering. No longer reflecting on what she was going through on being rejected and neglected and despised and just used and abused by her husbands, by her husband, to have sons, to be satisfied. But now she finds satisfaction in the Lord. Now I will praise, regardless of Jacob's love, she experienced the love of God. And she realized that she needed to find her contentment in the Lord, not in her husband. That's a great reminder. No matter how good or bad your marriage is, find your contentment in the Lord. And come to a place of praise before him, regardless of your circumstance. The Lord brought a son. She didn't get it yet. He brought another son. Here's another opportunity. She didn't get it yet. Brought another son. Here's another opportunity. She didn't get it quite yet. Brought another son. Here's another opportunity. And she got it. What mercy God has bestowed. He wanted her to understand. He wanted her to come to a place of praise. So he gave more mercy so that she would come to the place of praise. Now, listen, from these sons would come the two greatest tribes. The tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. The tribe of Judah was the royal tribe. And ultimately, and most importantly, the Messiah, Jesus, comes from Leah. Jesus, who is both priest and king, comes through Leah. Through the forgotten and forsaken came the Messiah. Because God redeems and restores and continues to pour out his grace and mercy. In the midst of all the dysfunction, all of the sinful ways, God 
ministers. He has compassion and mercy on Leah and uses her in a mighty way. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy. That in spite of us, you work out your way, your plan. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you tonight. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, anybody who's watching, listening right now, that they would be surrendered to you give their lives to you. And if you're here tonight and you have not yet given your life to Jesus, know this, he loves you so much. In the midst of whatever dysfunction you may have, he loves you. And he calls you to repentance. He calls you to a place of praise. And so if you've never invited Jesus to come into your life, would you do that today? Would you confess that you're a sinner? And would you say that I believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead? Would you invite him into your life? Would you put your trust in him and ask him to be your Lord?